0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Genesis. So let me just give you just a quick overview or a quick summary of what has happened in the first 11 chapters. Really, the first 11 chapters are commonly called as the, the primeval history of the world, or the initial history uh, with regards to the various origins in this world. And we saw various things, how God created the world, how sin came in, what marriage is, what that relationship between a husband and wife is, um, and... Uh, God's revelation, the power of God's word, uh, and how God's plan to bless mankind would come to play. But if there's one thing, and as we transition to really 12 to the end of the book, this is the patriarchal history where we'll see uh, great men of God, but they are at best just men. We will see them at their greatest, as they trust God and as they follow God's plan and purposes, but we will also see their failures and their sins. And really, if as we come into this new section, there is really a pattern already that is set up in the first 11 chapters. And the pattern is this, that sin is entrenched in man. It is so inside of man that unless God intervenes, man will continue to live for himself in his sin and that will lead ultimately to his ruin and damnation. Man cannot do anything to help himself. Unless God intervenes. I mean, if we just look at the, perhaps the big episodes in the first 11 chapters. We think of in the Garden of Eden when God created the man and the woman. And then they sinned and rebelled against God. If God had left them there in the garden, if God had left them in their sin, If God had left them there to eat of the tree of life, they would be locked in forever in their sinful state, and there would be no way that they would be able to be saved. And yet God intervenes. God throws them out of the garden, bars them from eating of the tree of the fruit of eternal life, and then gives them a promise gives them a promise that he will send one who is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and would reverse this curse and that blessing of God would be
1: returned one day. And yet what we see is despite that, as,
0: as one generation after a generation goes past, Sin becomes rampant, and then we get to the time of the flood. Sin had become so rampant, man is violent and sinful, and is even mixing with demons, thinking they can cross boundaries and become great and perhaps even uh, you know, somehow over, uh,
1: overthrow God's rule in their life. And so God then sends a flood of judgment, Destroying
0: all of sinful mankind bar just one family, Noah and his family. He saves them in the ark and brings them out into this new world that has been destroyed by the flood of waters. And yet what we see is also that while God destroyed that old earth, so to speak, that sin did not disappear. Sin was still entrenched in man. Sin got into that ark that was made, and sin entered again into this new world. It was in the heart of Noah and his family. And again, as what we see is God still, despite the sin that is there, God intervenes and God says, my plan is still to bless, and he blesses Noah and his family. He restrains evil, restrains the wild animals, uh, sets up that Noah covenant that we saw. And yet what we see is generations of mankind, as it moves forward, sin continues to be rampant, and we get to the Tower of Babel. And what we see here is now the entire human race, again, rebelling against God. This time, they're building a tower and a city, waterproofing it from perhaps if God sends some judgment, trying to get up to the heavens, thinking that they would be rulers of this entire universe as well, trying to replace God. And what we see is, and that would only, again, lead to their ruin. But again, God intervenes. And God, in judgment, confuses their language. They are unable to finish that whole building project, and they're dispersed over the earth. There's division, there's different nations that are being formed.
1: Different nations according to their lands and languages. And the question comes, so
0: how is God's plan that he had promised back in Genesis 3.15, how is that going to come to pass? I mean, if, if there's simply division and man is still very much in sin, what is the hope for man? And really starting here is the hope that we see of God once again intervening. What we see in this passage in Genesis 1 to 3, and really you could even say even
1: 1 to 9 to some degree, is, is God's calling of Abram.
0: And it serves as a paradigm of salvation. It serves as a paradigm of saving faith. Where God calls this man, Abram, out from darkness to light. Where God calls Abram out from unbelief to belief. And really, it's a a reminder to those of us who are believers
1: of what it is that God has done in our lives too. It's also a passage that talks about
0: the role that Israel will have, the role that Israel is to play as this nation will come about from the loins of Abram. It's also a passage that talks about how now God's plan of salvation will come to the whole world. So this is an important passage, and I've titled this passage as uh, God's Calling of Abram or God Calling Abraham, and I've divided these three verses into two sections, which you can pretty much see it as you read it. In verse 1, we'll see the command of God, and verses 2 and 3, we'll see the promises of God. This is how God's call comes. It comes in the form of a command, but then added to that command, there's the the promises of God of what He will do. Uh, It's an emphasis on His ability. So let's look at these three verses as we think of how it serves for us as the paradigm of saving faith and even. Of God's role for Israel, and even beyond that, how God's plan of redemption is going to take place for the entire world. Verse 1 it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, now the Lord said to Abram, Abram's a key figure in the life of Israel. In fact, even to this day, the Jewish people know Abram very well. And it is from this man that the nation of Israel will come about. And he's also going to be a key figure in God's plan of salvation in bringing blessing to the sin-cursed world. And to a degree, all of us know this. But because of what we know of Abram, because we know what's coming later and perhaps even later in the New Testament, we might miss out on the significance of God's
1: word coming to Abram. I mean, as I just reiterated, you know, after the
0: time of the flood, God had started over with one family, Noah and his family. Now, this family, they knew the Lord God, who he was, what he had done to save them. They they saw his saving power. They had experienced it themselves. But as the generations passed, the people turned from God again. And it wasn't just the curse line of Canaan. But even the, that promised line of Shem, one of the sons of Noah, that promised line of Shem as well, forsook the true and living God. I mean, we saw this uh, a few weeks ago from Joshua 24, 2, where it said that Terah and his family, Terah is Abram's father, Terah and his family were idol worshippers, and they were mostly worshippers of the moon. See, they were so lost in their sin, so spiritually dead, so darkened in their thinking that they were substituting, worshipping the true and living God, the creator God, and they were turning and submitting themselves to things that which were created. So Abrams in this state, he wasn't anybody special He wasn't seeking after God. He was an idol worshiper lost in sin just like most of the world at the time. And it is into this darkness that Abram was in. It is into this life of sin and idolatry. Into this darkness the light of God's word breaks through the true and living God comes face to face with this pagan worshiper. And you can think about this when the Israelites, you know, they're they're somewhere in the plains of Moab ready to conquer the promised land as they're listening to the first five books that Moses had written. And as they're listening to this for the first time, they're getting a sense that right of their beginnings, and right from their patriarch, Abram, there's nothing special. It is all of God's sovereign grace. It would have been a reminder to them that they too are not special. And we'll read that later on in the book of Deuteronomy, especially where God says, oh, there was nothing special about you, Israel. I didn't choose you because you were special. I chose you because I chose you. I loved you because I loved you. It was simply because of God's sovereign grace. And really to those of us who are Believers too, we can attest to the same, can't we? That we were just like everybody else, lost in sin. We were spiritually dead. We didn't do anything to, you know, somehow make us come to spiritual life. No, it's only because of God's sovereign grace invading our lives. It's only because God's word came and invaded our lives and brought us to life. Oh, how marvelous the grace of God, isn't it? It is sovereign, it is powerful, and yet so undeserved. Now, you might be thinking, oh, come on, Benoît. I mean, you've been talking about the grace of God, especially even the last few months. You've talked about this so many times. Yes, I have talked about this so many times. But I want you to see again the sovereign grace of God that is so undeserving. Why? So that we would never take lightly God's grace that we would never cheapen it, that we would never take it for granted, that it really was God's sovereign grace. It was nothing about us, not because we were special, but because
1: of God's doing and God's doing alone. So God's word comes to this pagan idolater named
0: Abram. And God is going to call him out of spiritual darkness. And it comes in the form of a command. This is what God says. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. It's a call to to
1: go. It's very emphatic. You yourself, you go, you alone go. Now, first God says, go from your
0: country. Now, what is country in this context? Well, it's referring to the land that he was settled in. Now, there is some debate about where Abram is at this point when he gets this call. You know, we saw a few weeks ago from Acts 7, verses 2 and 3, that God appeared to Abram before he was in Haran. While he was still in Ur of Chaldeans, which is basically Babylon, or you know where Babel is. That's that's where God appeared to Abram. This this big city of Babylon or Babel or Ur of Chaldeans. Now this was a big city. Lots of developments, lots of advancements, lots of comforts for that day and age. And it was also the center of idol worship, especially the worship of the moon. So God first appears to Abram in Babylon in Ur of Chaldeans. And then Abram somehow persuades his father and they start moving. And they move up north and they reach Haran because all, all over here is just arid desert. So they, they move along up north and they reach Haran. Haran's a place, another big place, a place of trade and commerce. And really after the Ur of Chaldeans, it was the second biggest place where they worshipped the moon. And so as we saw a few weeks ago, quite likely, Abram's father, who is still an unbeliever, you know, traveled this distance and said, okay, that's it. I've had enough. I don't want to leave this place. I can't just keep going wherever. And it says that they settled there, similar to the people at Babel who wanted to settle at Babel. So it's casting it in negative light. So either way, the the call in Genesis 12, so it's either just talking about that call that came while Abram was still in Ur of Chaldeans, now they're in Haran, and this is what's happening, or given the context that they are now in Haran, it's possible even that God is reiterating his call a second time. Now, in Haran. But either way, it doesn't change the meaning of the text. And what God is calling and commanding Abram to do is for him to separate himself from all that Abram knows to be his life. God says, separate from, uh, you know, there needs to be a break from your country or your land. You know, this place which was comfortable for him. People who spoke the same language. People who had the same culture. Remember, the lands were divided accordingly. Those who spoke different languages and cultures and so on and so forth. And God says, not only that, that that's, it's not just your country and that land that you were supposed to separate from, but from your kindred. Or from your clan. Now clans are uh, really groups of families, households, you know, a bigger unit. You could say distantly related people. You could call them their, their network of, his network of people. People that he would interact with often and regularly. People who would perhaps, you know, care for one another's properties and herds while one took rest, the other would come and help out and so on and so forth. And even provided security and protection from thieves and robbers because now you're living with this big clan or kindred. All of you are living together in one area. So thieves would dare not come in, and even if somebody
1: came and stole, say, your flock or something, then the whole clan would go and get it back. God says you are to separate from them. Then it says you are to separate from
0: your father's house. This is, you know, you, you can think of it as concentric circles, from the land, the country you're used to, the kindred, your associations, and now even your close family, to break from his immediate family. See, God had already come to Abram in Ur of Chaldeans, and they've now moved to Haran. Now, it could be that, you know, Abram's probably, you know, just couldn't break ties with his father. Maybe he was just waiting patiently for some honorable way to break ties with him. Uh, You know, could, could be, perhaps. But what we do know is now his father is dead in Haran. And so the call now is as... The call comes to Abram, whether in Haran a second time or that initial call, is to separate from everything, Abram, that you cling to, to find your comfort in, to find your identity in, to find your significance in and your security in.
1: Separate from all of that. And then go to the land that I will show you, says God. Go to the land that I will show you. Talk about being vague.
0: I mean, it's not like he can get on his Google Maps and say, okay, I'm in Haran now, and yes, God, what was that place? Oh, okay, I'll just put that in. No, no destination. Just keep driving. You know, there's, there's no end destination whatsoever. I mean, this would have been an unthinkable thing to do, particularly in this time. Here's what one commentator says with regards to this. He says, quote, Only poverty-stricken or the defeated would wander. Only the landless and the fugitive would move about and leave their ancestral home." this was not something that they would do in that ancient world. They would just stay put to wherever they were. They wouldn't just wander around and leave their land, leave their families and just go on. And then on top of that, if you think, the people are divided according to their clans and families into these different lands according to their different languages. So going to Some faraway land somewhere without his kindred during those times could even be a dangerous thing because he could be attacked by robbers. Thieves could come and steal things from him and, you know, his life could be in jeopardy. There's no security for Abram from a human standpoint. In fact, in in every sense, with regards to his identity and everything else, God is saying, I want you to lose all of that. And he doesn't even know where he's going other than God saying, I will direct you. He has to take God at his word. It's a call to implicitly trust God even though he can't see what's ahead. It's a call for Abram to move from the known, what he knows to be true, to the unknown and just completely trust God. It's a call to move from unbelief to belief in this true and living God. It's a call to forsake any kind of dependence on man and to fully trust. And really, it's a call to separate from his old way of life and from his idolatrous life of sin to a new life of trust in the living God. This is how God calls people to himself, out from the sinful world. This is is how he does it. Every person who has experienced the saving grace of God would have experienced this in their life. And this is how they live their life. That there is a repentance there in their life. A turning away from that old life of sin and darkness and then a turning to a new life of trust in Jesus Christ. This is important to understand. Yes, God's grace is certainly undeserved. But this gracious call of God is in no way a call to live in any which way we want. You know, sometimes you know people can have this attitude oh, you know, God's grace has come to my life. I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. And because God's grace has come to my life, so I know I won't go to hell. But I can live any which way I want. You know, they would say things like, oh, I'm trusting in Jesus, so I won't go to hell. So I've got that, you know, no damnation, get out of jail. Uh, That's not going to happen for me. I've got that ticket. Hey, but God is grace, it's His grace. So, I can just live any way which way I want, thinking it is such a cheap grace. Let me remind you, friends, that that's not true saving faith. That's not how God's saving grace works. When save God's saving grace comes into a person's life, there is a separation, a breaking away from sin. A turning away from self, a turning away from any human effort, a turning away from self-righteousness, thinking, oh, I can do this, I I I should be fine. It's a turning away from all of that and then a trusting in, a turning to God in Jesus Christ alone and trusting in Him alone. And this is not just you know, this one event. You know, what we'll see is that Abram, although he is you know, not a perfect person, he will continue to do this for the rest of his life. And this is the same for everyone who is a believer. It's not just a one-time thing that somebody does. It's a daily turning away from and a forsaking that old life of sin and self-indulgence. And is a turning to and a trusting in Jesus alone and having him as our priority in life. Sure, it won't be done perfectly. But it certainly is the characteristic of everyone who is a true believer. I mean, this is what true saving faith looks like.
1: This is what a person who is truly called out by God, looks like. So Abram is called out by God and along
0: with the summons or the command to forsake everything to follow him, the Lord also promises blessing to Abram. And here we come to our second point, the the promises of God. Verse 2 and 3. Now it says, I will make you, God says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice all the I wills in this. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will do this. God is the one who's promising these things as this call comes to Abram. That by his sovereign power, by his ability, he will do this. And this is another characteristic of saving faith. See, it's a turning away and forsaking our old life of sin and trusting in ourselves and our efforts, and then it's a turning to trusting in Jesus, trusting in God, and His ability. You know, I think it was MacArthur who said, you know, Christianity is the only religion whereby, you know, every other religion is about human achievement, but Christianity is the only religion where it's about divine achievement. And divine accomplishment. And that is what the call is here now. To turn away, turn away from that old life of darkness and to trust in God's ability and what He has said He will do. Now, first, God says, I will make you a great nation. Now, what is this nation talking about? This is referring to the nation of Israel. And the greatness of the nation, it's not so much because they would become uh, great numerically. I mean, that would happen. They would grow in numbers. But we, again, as we read in Deuteronomy, when God says to Israel, you know, You weren't great in numbers. There were other nations around you who were much greater in numbers. So the greatness of this nation is not so much their numbers, but the greatness of the nation that would come from Abram would be that with regards to the kind of impact that they would have on the rest of the world. The kind of spiritual impact that they would have on the rest of the world. See, this is a nation that would be set apart and made distinct from every other nation for this purpose, for the way it would have an influence on the rest of the nations. It would be a nation that would be devoted to God, a nation that lives for His glory and purposes. God would reveal Himself to this nation that would come from Abram. And God would lead this nation in a very special way. And this nation would be chosen to represent God on this earth. This nation would be chosen to pass on the revelation of God, to pass on the word of God. This nation would be chosen to pass on the, even the message of salvation. Salvation. And in fact, it is through this nation, the very Messiah, the promised seed, Jesus Christ would come. Now, here's the thing. I mean, we've been told in the previous section that Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren. So, Abram's got no children. And on top of that, Abram's not a young man. Have children, and then on top of that, the only land that Abram had, God is saying, Oh, leave all that, leave all that behind. I mean, the question is, How are you gonna have a
1: nation without any offspring and without any land? And yet, God is
0: promising that this man who has no children and who is going to renounce his nation will become the father of a new great nation that would spiritually impact the rest of the world. Next, God says, I will bless you. Here, God is promising personal blessing for Abram. That God's favor would be on Abram. Yes, there would be material blessing. Yes, Abram would have children. But even beyond that, despite all of his failures, Abram would be blessed spiritually more than anything else. And this too is all part of God's grace in Abram's life. Next, God says, I will make your name great. Now, this is not just talking about Abram's reputation. I mean, yes, he will become a man of great character for sure. Uh, uh, You you know, the father of faith, really. A man even to this day that is known by the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians who view uh, Abram as a great man of faith. But beyond his reputation, the idea of having a great name Uh, for human beings was particularly, uh, this great name was given to kings. And so it's, it's even alluding to the fact that from Abram, connected to Abram, kings would come who would rule the earth, representing the rule of God and defeating the enemies of God. And in some sense, it's even pointing to the ultimate king, the Messiah, who would come and crush the head of the serpent. So I will make your name great. You know, here, here's the thing. Just before this incident, the last major incident was the Tower of Babel. And you remember at the Tower of Babel, people were doing all this you know, creating a city and this big tower all the way up to the heavens to make a great name for themselves by their own effort. But it never happened. And this is always the case. You know, when man tries to elevate himself by his own strength, he's always brought down. But here God is telling Abram that his name will be made great because of what the Lord will do in his life. And his name will forever be associated with how great the Lord was and what God had done in his life and through him. And the intention for God blessing Abram To be a great nation, to be personally blessed and have a great name is noticed at the end of verse 2, so that you will be a blessing. See, Abram was to receive all this blessing from God, not so that Abram could hold on to it like that, where, you know, everything just stops with Abram. No, it's so that Abram could be a blessing to others. Now, there's one preacher, you know, I remember hearing a preacher many years ago who said, you know, Abram was not to be a bucket, but a funnel of God's blessing." not just this container of God's blessing and it's all just sitting here, but a funnel whereby God's blessing comes and then it flows through. That he's not just to be a dam where the waters just come and everything just gets piled up, but to be a river that flows uh, going uh, to where it's meant to go to others. He is to be a channel of God's blessing to others even as God's grace and blessing has come to him. But how? I mean, how is Abram to be a blessing to others? Verse 3 tells us this. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. See, essentially it's like this, that God would so identify with Abram that he would have such a close bond, a close relationship with Abram, that those who are friends of, God, of friends of Abram are friends of God, and those who are enemies of Abram are enemies of God. That those who deal well with Abram would experience God's favor and blessing, and those who are hostile to Abram, God would curse and they would be punished. And you can understand why, right? I mean, Abram's chosen by God. God's sovereign grace is at work in his life, or is going to be at work in his life. He's the channel of blessing. And so as this man, he goes around going about God's purposes, because this is why God has chosen him, to do God's purposes, to come against Therefore, this man would be to go against the purposes of God. It would be to go against God's plan of salvation and blessing that he was going to bring through this man. And so to reject Abram was to reject the God of Abram. And so there's even a divine protection for Abram, and and not only for Uh, You know, this plays out not only for Abram, but even his offspring, the, the nation that would come, the nation of Israel, that there would be protection for the nation of Israel as well that would come from him, that as the nation of Israel, as they would carry out God's purposes, as they would further God's plan of salvation and blessing by coming into the land, by conquering the enemies. God would enable them to defeat their enemies that would come against them because this is God's plan and God's purposes and His plan of salvation is being worked out. And then God finally adds this to His promise. Last part of verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's there's personal promises given to Abram, there's national promises given to the nation of Israel, and there's also the universal promise, that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I mean, this is the ultimate purpose of the promises to Abram, that the blessing of salvation that has come to Abram would now extend to the nations of the earth. I mean, we saw in Genesis 10, right? Or e- even taking Genesis 10 and 11 together, where after the account of the Tower of Babel, God scatters the people, and the nations are divided and scattered all over the earth, and they're still in their sin. And the question is, that, does God care for the nations? Does God care for this world? The answer is yes, God certainly cares for the world. He has not forgotten his purpose and his plans. And this is God's answer. That God will bring about salvation and blessing to the nations and it will be through Abram and through the nation that will come from him and ultimately through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come from his line. Now when it says all nations will be blessed, This is not saying each and every individual on earth will be blessed and will be saved. I mean, there's no concept of universal salvation and blessing anywhere in the Bible. But what it is saying is that from every nation and every tribe and tongue, so representative of all the nations of the earth, God's blessing and grace would come to them. Not one nation, not one family would be left out. Yes, there will be those who reject the offer of God's grace and they will be condemned. But those who receive God's free gift of grace, they will be blessed and they will be saved. So really, when you think about it, God's promises to Abram is also ultimately connected to the salvation of the world. Where God will remove the curse of sin and death and bring his original blessed state that was there in Eden. The Abrahamic blessing becomes now the conduit
1: which connects to what God had said before to bring about the salvation of the world. Now, here's the thing. When you come to the
0: New Testament, let me just turn to, if you turn to Acts chapter 3, verse 25, here's Peter preaching to the Israelites, preaching to the Jewish people. And here he says in Acts 3.25, You were the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abram, And in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. So here you see that the Israelites are called the offspring of Abram. The physical offspring of Abram. But then if you turn a few pages later, come to the book of Galatians, and we read part of it this morning. Come to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7. Let me read 7 and 8. It says this, know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abram. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what that means is that you and I who are believers, you and I who are Gentiles, are also recipients of Abraham's blessing. It's not just the Israelites. They're not just the offspring. We're also the offspring of Abraham. But you say, but how did we become recipients of Abraham's blessing? I mean, we want the nation of Israel. We want direct physical descendants from Abraham then how did this come about? How did we become his offspring and how did we have the blessing of Abram? Well, I want you to read on and let's just read verses 10 through to 14 of again Galatians 3. It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So just what those verses are just, you know, if I were to paraphrase and just really summarize in a couple of sentences, saying that those who rely on their own works thinking of some standard of, oh, you know, if I just live this way, if I just be this much, you know, this much of religiosity, if I just go to church enough, if I just pray enough, if I go to some kind of pilgrimage, if I just do enough good works, if you're relying on those works of the law, some kind of uh, standard like that, then you will be cursed. See, because God has a standard, his law is a perfect standard and you will never meet up to that standard. You will never be perfect in living that way. So then then how? What is it that God does? It says then, verse 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I love that. See, we who were under the curse of sin and death, we were all in that state, we who were Gentiles, non-Jewish people, And yet the most blessed one, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, came down to this world and took on himself the curse of sin and death. And he was cursed. And he was damned for our sake. Why? So that God's blessing of salvation Would come to those of us who would put our trust in Jesus. I wonder if there's anyone here
1: listening this morning who does not know Jesus. And you're just living for yourself.
0: Perhaps in indulgent sin by worldly standards, or perhaps you're trying to abstain from all that and trying to be religious and trying to be moral but you're still ultimately just living for yourself. Let me tell you, friend, that you're still lost in your sin. You are still in spiritual darkness. And I'm not saying that to hurt you in any sense. While it might be hurtful, it is the truth. You're in that same state that Abraham was in before he was called. And there is nothing you can do, no works, no no nothing you can do to ever get you out of this state. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And you continue to live like this, it'll lead you to your ruin and eternal damnation. That's where you're going. And you
1: know that to be true deep down inside. You know you cannot get rid of the sin that is in you. But let me also tell you that God in his grace and his mercy into this
0: dark world, he came in the form of Jesus Christ. As I said before, to take on the curse of sin and death where he
1: was punished for the sin of this world. So what is it that you can do this morning if you don't follow Christ? if you have not put
0: your trust in him. It's the same as the call to Abram. Forsake your life of sin. Forsake your life of living for yourself. And turn to Jesus and trust in him. Trust
1: in what he has done on that cross And if you say, Yes, I believe, I trust, I I I turn away from
0: this, then I would say then continue to believe. Continue to turn away from that life each and every day and continue to trust him and live to make much of Jesus and make his name great. Now the people of Israel, as they're listening to this section, they're camped out somewhere in the plains of Moab. And they're thinking this is how their journey started, or their very existence started with their patriarch Abram. It was to forsake that life of idolatry and darkness and to trust in the living God. Now, Israel's got to make that choice. As they're thinking of entering into the promised land, will they go back into their sin? Will they go back to worshiping idols? Or will they truly trust in this living God and by trusting him, take over the land and further his purposes so that they can be a blessing to the nations around them? And I would say it's the same for us, even us as believers. Even as we start this new year, to ask
1: ourselves, are we daily forsaking living for ourselves?
0: Are we daily turning away from worldly lusts and all that this world has to offer? And are we turning to Jesus? Are we trusting in Him, trusting in His ability? And trusting in his purposes, wise, not so we can hug on to all the spiritual blessings and everything that he has given us, so that we too then can be a blessing and tell others about this great God who has come in the form of Jesus Christ. This is what saving faith is. May God help us to live this way
1: even as we start this new year. Let's pray together. Oh gracious God.
0: We thank you for your undeserved grace in calling us out. Because we wouldn't know otherwise. We wouldn't have the ability otherwise. We would still be lost in our sin. Yeah, we thank you that you called us out from darkness. You called us into light to live for you. To have eternal life. To be blessed by you. To live for your glory and your glory alone. And so, Father, we do pray that even as we start this new year, we would be a people that is marked by faith in you and you alone. And that we would continue to turn away from ourselves, turn away from the things of this world, and we would seek to make much of you. We ask, O Lord, that you would bless your word to us now, that it would sink deep into our hearts and help us to live in light of what we have heard. We ask all these things
1: in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.